The reading for this morning will come from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 34. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. Then he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I want to talk this morning. I'm thankful to be with you this morning and, and to share from God's word. As, as Robin Donna shared and as Ginger read, we're going to look at... Um, Mark chapter 5 and the story of Jesus' encounter with Jairus and his daughter and the story of the bleeding woman. And I want to look at this idea of being seen by God. I want to talk this morning about being the apple of God's eye, that you and I are delighted in by God, and that he sees us and that you're the apple of his eye. So we get started, I want to share just a quick story uh, from a man named Bill Kane, who is a pastor. And the story goes like this. It says, years ago, Bill Kane took a break from his own ministry to care for his father as he died of cancer. His father had become a frail man, dependent on Bill to do everything for him. Though he was physically not what he had been and the disease was wasting him away, his mind remained alert and lively. In the role reversal common to adult children who care for their dying parents, Bill would put his father to bed and then read him to sleep exactly as his father had done for him in childhood. Bill would read from some book or novel, and his father would lie there staring at his son, smiling. Bill would be exhausted from the day's care and work and would plead with his dad, Look, Dad, here's the deal. I read to you, you fall asleep. Bill's father would impishly apologize and dutifully close his eyes, but this wouldn't last long. Soon enough, Bill's father would pop one eye open and smile at his son. Bill would catch him and whine, Now, come on, Dad, you need to rest. Close your eyes and go to bed. The father would again oblige until he couldn't anymore, and the other eye would open to catch a glimpse of his son. This went on and on, and after his father's death, Bill said that this evening ritual was really the story of a father who just couldn't take his eyes off his kid. This evening ritual is the story of a father who couldn't take his eyes off his kid. This little anecdote has meant a lot to me the last several months. My wife, Liz, and I, I think he's in the back somewhere, uh, we have our, our firstborn son, Emmett. He's seven months old. And there's been a lot of times over the last handful of months where Emmett will go to bed pretty early. He'll also wake up pretty early or through the middle of the night, you know, but he'll go to bed early. And Liz and I will just walk in his room. And sometimes we'll pray over him, but oftentimes we'll just stand there looking at him, staring at him, not, not in a creepy way, but just in a way of he's, he's our son, you know. 
we love him. He's not being productive. He's not doing anything. He's just laying there smiling. But he's the apple of our eye. And I can't help but be so proud of him and love him like crazy as his father and as his dad. And I want to make that parallel for us this morning that God Almighty looks at you and he looks at me the exact same way. That he looks at us with the light. That we are the apple of his eye and that he sees us. You know, if you're anything like me, within these last handful of months with everything that's been going on with racial unrest and our political climate and the coronavirus, everything that's going on with schools being canceled and then opened and hybrid learning and with weddings being deferred, bank accounts going up and down in the stock market, it's been a really crazy last handful of months. If you're like me, there's been this sense of, God, do you see what's going on? Do you see how crazy life is right now? Do you see, are you awake up there? You know, are you paying attention to all the craziness that's happening down here in my life? And I want to just loudly say this morning that yes, God does see you. It might seem like with all the craziness that's going on, God, do you, do you see me? Do you see what's going on in my life? The pain, the brokenness, the heartbreak, the depression, all of that stuff. I want to remind us this morning that yes, Jesus Christ, he does see you. So we'll walk through this passage this morning that Ginger read and that Robin Donna expanded on a little bit in, in bite size, but I want to walk through this with just this idea of being the apple of God's eye in the back of our mind. So again, this is Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21, and the scriptures say this. It says, When Jesus had again crossed in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And so Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better but rather grew worse. There's a couple characters in this story. On on one hand, you have Jairus. He's a ruler in the synagogue. Some translations say he was the president or the chief elder of the synagogue, a man that's important and educated and of high standing. And he comes and falls at Jesus' feet and says, Jesus, my little daughter is dying. And for those of you guys that have kids, you can picture the, the earnestness in his heart saying, Jesus, please, anything that you can do, please. And Jairus comes to him in faith, falls at his feet, and Jesus says, okay, I'll, I'll go with you. And on their journey of Jesus going to heal Jairus' daughter, there's a crowd around him. This crowd's always gathered around Jesus. He's the most amazing person that ever lived. There's one person in the crowd that the scriptures focus on, this woman who's been bleeding. This bleeding disorder that she had that the scriptures talk about, I've read a lot of scholars and people way smarter than me that don't know what exactly this disorder was. Some people think it was some sort of menstrual discharge. Some people think that it's internal bleeding, external We're not quite sure what it is, but regardless, it's a physical ailment and it's painful. That there's this this sense of for 12 years, she's had this disease, this physical disorder that has has kept her from, from living her life to the full. One scholar says this, that it wasn't just a physical ailment, that there were some emotional, relational, and social implications to this as well. G. Campbell Morgan says this, it says, by the very law of her people, talking about the bleeding woman, She would be divorced from her husband and could not live in her home. She was ostracized from all society and must not come into contact with her old friends. She was excommunicated from the service of the synagogue and thus shut out of the woman's courts in the temple. She was ceremonially unclean. 
from the story, you have this woman who isn't just suffering physically for 12 years and had gone to a bunch of different doctors, spent all of her money, but also she would have been divorced. She would have been ceremonially unclean, looked down on, really cast out of society, and really had this emotional and relational trauma. I can't imagine the loneliness, the sense of divorce. I mean, well, I just can't be friends with you because you're unclean. There's something wrong with you. If she wanted to worship God, if she wanted to go to the synagogue, she couldn't even go there because she was unclean. She couldn't even show up to church. But here's a woman who is down and out, an absolute outcast. And it's interesting in this story how she goes from doctor to doctor to doctor, physician to physician to physician, trying to figure out what's wrong with her. Saying, man, if I, if I can only get healed, if I can only go to the right doctor, get the right therapy, get the right diet, get the right medicine, if only I can kind of tweak something, then maybe I'll be okay. Then maybe my brokenness, my hurt will be subsided. And I wonder for, for us, just to take a pause here, is what doctors, what physicians do you go to? That you might not have a 12-year bleeding disorder, but when you see the brokenness and the hurt in your own life, what doctors do you go to? I work a lot with teenagers and middle school and high school and, and college-age students with, with Young Life, and a lot of their doctors manifest themselves in kind of these if-then statements. If I can just make the varsity team, then I'll be accepted. If I can just take the right girl or the right guy to prom, then I'll be loved. If I can just score high enough on the SAT, then I'll get into the right college and get the right job, and then I'll, then I'll be valuable to society. I think for the adults in the room, it's a little different, but not too much. If I can just have a, enough zeros at the end of my bank account, then I'll feel safe and secure. If I can just have my family Christmas card look a certain way and kind of have all of our ducks in a row as a family, then people will look at us and think that we have our act together. If I can just get the right promotion or kind of make, make more money, then I'll, be, then I'll be satisfied and be happy. I think for this woman, and I'm sure as you guys have experiences, experienced, those things don't work. Doctor after doctor after doctor, thing after thing after thing that she went to didn't satisfy, didn't heal her. And she was driven to Jesus' feet, which is so, so beautiful. But I want to just pause here and say, both with Jairus and with the bleeding woman, this question of Jesus, do you see my hurt? Do you see the pain that I'm going through? I'm, I'm, I'm bleeding. I'm in despair. My husband's divorced me. God, do you see what's going on? I love in this story that Jesus Christ sees your hurt. That in this moment, Jesus sees her. He sees her hurt. He sees her brokenness. And he sits in it with her, which I think is so, so beautiful. God, do you see my hurt? Do you see what's going on? The answer is yes. Let me keep reading in verse 27. Said she, has heard, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Uh... Sorry, one sec. And his, sorry, verse 31. And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. I can picture this woman again as I was describing not only this physical ailment, but this emotional, mental, relational, spiritual brokenness that she had felt from being kicked out of society. 
I can picture her being at the end of her ropes. Man, I've tried doctor after doctor after doctor for 12 years. Nothing's working. And she sees Jesus in the crowd, and she gets this idea, if I can just touch his garment, if I can just touch the edge of his cloak, then I'll be made well. And I can picture this woman as the crowds are around Jesus again. Remember, Jesus is on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. Jesus is on an important rescue mission. And this woman is really an interruption. And as she's wading through the crowd, trying to kind of sift through to Jesus, I can picture her heart racing. If you've ever asked someone to marry you or asked for a promotion or asked for a raise or done something where you've kind of put yourself out there where you've risked something and your heart's racing, and I can picture this woman as she gets closer and closer and closer to Jesus that her heart's pounding out of her chest. Is this going to be another disappointment? Is this going to be another doctor that doesn't work? Or is this going to be the one? She reaches out and touches the edge of his cloak, just touches his garment, and it says immediately her bleeding stopped. The flow of blood was gone. In this woman, I can just picture the, the sense of burden that would have been lifted the joy and the elation of 12 years of this ailment in that moment being healed, being gone, man, how amazing that must have felt. But then the dichotomy between that and the moment right after that where Jesus says, hold up, wait a second, someone touched me. And this woman may be thinking that she had gotten away with a, a touch, you know, and could kind of just sneak out into the crowd. Jesus says, whoa, whoa, wait a second, someone touched me. And his disciples Hey, Jesus, what do you mean someone touched you? There's people kind of bumping up all around you. And Jesus says, no, 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 this wasn't a touch. Or this wasn't a bump, this was a touch. Someone reached out and touched me, this wasn't a bump. And the woman, if it were me, I'd kind of be sifting through my options of, do I run away? Do I kind of act like I fainted? Do I kind of come clean? What do I do? I do? The woman falls at Jesus' feet with fear and with trembling and tells Jesus the whole truth. In the NIV, it says that, she told Jesus her whole story. I think of how beautiful that moment must have been, a woman bleeding for 12 years, an outcast in society, maybe her clothes are tattered, she's run out of money, spent it all on physicians, her literally, fear and trembling, kneeling at the feet of Jesus, telling Jesus her whole story. I wonder what that was, what that was like for her. Jesus, you know, I had a husband, but then I had this disease and he left me and my family and I love just the compassion and the majesty of our Lord that he sits there and gives this woman dignity. In a culture and a society that casts her out, Jesus listens to her whole story. And I think for us, and I want you to be reminded this morning that Jesus wants to listen to your own story. He wants to hear your whole truth. It's interesting, uh, just a snapshot of this, of this picture of verse 33 of this woman at Jesus' feet. And Jesus is a man, and in this culture had a lot of power, and this woman did not have much power. In our culture, we have an interesting relationship with people in authority and people that are vulnerable. In this scenario, the woman is incredibly vulnerable before Jesus' feet. Jesus could have stood there and said, how dare you steal my power from me? He could have cussed her out. He could have, he could have done whatever he wanted, and he would have been really able to do that. But I love in this moment when we see all around us in our culture of people in power exploiting and abusing and using their position of power to hurt, to hurt people lower than them, that Jesus, in this moment of incredible vulnerability for this woman and Jesus in this incredible moment of power, doesn't use his power to abuse, to hurt, to exploit. He uses his power to look at her and to love her. I think Jesus not only sees the hurt of this woman and sees the hurt of Jairus, I think Jesus also sees her desire for wholeness. 
that in this passage, this woman wants more. She wants to be made whole. That she is, she is broken and she comes to Jesus with a desire for her brokenness to be made whole. I've been haunted the past couple of weeks as I've been thinking about this passage in this sermon of why was Jesus so insistent on stopping the crowd? Jesus is on an important mission. He had already healed the lady. Why was he so intent on making her come forward and confess herself? I think we get our answer in verse 34 in this beautiful encounter. It says, Jesus turned to her and said, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I wonder if the reason why Jesus stopped this crowd, Jesus kind of jettisoned from his original rescue mission to help Jairus' daughter, the whole reason why he stopped this whole crowd was just so that he could look this woman in the eyes and call her daughter. A woman who was cast out from her family, was divorced, excommunicated from society, so now she had no family. Jesus Christ, God Almighty, looks her dead in the eye and calls her daughter. Man, how beautiful is that? In all of the scriptures, we have no account of Jesus calling someone daughter. She's the only person in scripture that Jesus calls daughter. I love how he follows that up with saying, your faith has healed you. It's not your intellect. She probably couldn't read or write. It wasn't her good deeds. It wasn't her church attendance. She wasn't even allowed to go into the synagogue. It was her faith that had healed her. That touch that she had, that risk that she took to reach out and touch Jesus. Daughter, your faith has healed you. And then the last part, go in peace and be healed of your disease. That last phrase, be healed of your disease, had struck me. A couple other translations say, go and be freed of your suffering. Now I've been kind of sitting in this passage for a while and have been struck by in verse 29 the first time that she reaches out and touches Jesus it says that she was healed of her disease it says that she was free of her suffering and so why is it I thought in verse 29 the moment she touched him she was healed not in verse 34 when Jesus calls her daughter and man I, I think this I think that the woman comes to Jesus hoping and wanting wholeness physically hoping to be physically healed and Jesus says I'm not just going to give you physical healing you're going to be a part of my family he heals her relationally, emotionally, spiritually. And I think this, guys, when we come to Jesus wanting one thing, she came for physical healing, but Jesus gave her way, way more. And I think the same is true with us. This really tender, powerful moment is interrupted. We didn't read it this morning, but I kind of want to just cliff notes the rest of Mark chapter 5. This really tender moment is interrupted. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. This scene is interrupted by folks from Jairus' household who come and say, hey, Jairus, your daughter, your daughter didn't make it. She's dead. Essentially, man, maybe if you would have hurried up with this woman, maybe you would have got there in time. I imagine if you're Jairus, man, your heart's sinking. Your daughter, the one you love, is dead. Jesus, in one of the ways that only Jesus can, says something mysterious and empowering in verse 36 he says turns to Jairus and says Jairus don't be afraid don't fear just believe I'm not sure if Jairus is like thanks Jesus that sounds great you know or I'm not sure what he was thinking but they walk to Jairus's house and Jairus you know is maybe processing the whole death of his daughter and all of that but Jesus is with him Jesus stays right by his side they show up to Jairus's house and it's a death scene there's people there mourning and crying and weeping and wailing and screaming and Jesus shows up and he says why, why are you guys so upset she's not she's not dead she's just sleeping 
And as people through the centuries have laughed and mocked Jesus' words, they did the same. Jesus, what are you talking about? He's not sleeping, she's dead. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his three closest disciples, walks into Jairus' house, opens up the door to the daughter's bedroom, and looks down at a dead girl. And he looks down at her and he says, little girl, I say to you, get up. And the girl rises from the dead. And Jesus restores her back into her family, gives her back to her father. And everyone is amazed. I'm sure the disciples, as they've said multiple times in Scripture, of who is this man? Who is this man, Jesus, that takes broken things and makes them whole? That takes dead things and brings them back to life? I love the dichotomy in this story, and Rob and Donna had pointed this out in Bite Size, the dichotomy between Jairus and the bleeding woman. Jairus is a man, and he's named. He's given a name in the scriptures, Jairus. This woman, she made it in the Bible, but she didn't get her name. And she's a woman, and she's unnamed. She doesn't even have her name in the Bible. Jairus is a ruler in the synagogue. He's, he's educated. He's well-read. This woman was almost certainly illiterate. This man was highly respected by his peers, affluent. People looked at him and thought highly of him. This woman was an absolute outcast, the lowest of the low in society. They couldn't be more different, but the thing that they have in common is that they came to Jesus in faith and fell on their knees before him. Now here's two people, total opposites, but they have one thing in common, it's that they come to Jesus in faith, say, Jesus, please, I'm broken. I need healing. You know, I don't know this morning who you identify more with. Maybe you feel like Jairus. You know, maybe you have a good job and people look at you and say, man, they got it going on. Educated, well-respected, make good money. Or maybe you feel like the woman. Man, it's clear to everyone here that I do not have my life together. I don't know which side you're on or maybe you're somewhere in the middle, but I want to tell you this, that regardless of who you identify with or what you need healing from, that Jesus looks at you and gives you your true identity. Jesus looks at you, as he did with the bleeding woman in verse 34, and says, daughter. He looks at you and he says, son, Jesus Christ sees your true identity. Jesus not only sees your hurt, he not only sees your desire for wholeness, but he sees your true identity and he invites you into that. There's a story that I heard not too long ago about a little boy, maybe eight or nine years old, who, who loved boats. You know, as little kids sometimes get fixated on things, he loved boats. And so he made a toy boat. He carved it out of wood and sanded it down and put a sail on it and even carved his initials into the bottom of it. Was so proud of this little boat, you know, would carry it everywhere with him, kept it in his backpack, kept it, you know, in his bed at night and every day would play with this boat after school. They even had a little river behind the house that he'd kind of tie a little string to the, to the boat, and he'd stand on the bank of the river and, and kind of sail his boat, almost like a kite. He loved this boat, delighted in it. One day, there was a storm that came quickly. The wind picked up, the rain came howling down, and as the boy was sailing his boat with the string, the string snapped. And the little boy watched in devastation as the boat went sailing down the river and got smaller and smaller until he couldn't see it anymore. It was too dangerous for the boy to jump into the river and chase after his boat, and so he just watched it helplessly, screaming, crying, absolutely devastated by the loss of this thing that he loved. 
he ran inside and screaming and crying. It was inconsolable. He couldn't eat, couldn't sleep, had trouble focusing in school, was absolutely devastated. A few days later, he's walking down the street and something catches his eye at the, the window of this general store. He's walking down the street and he sees a boat that looks just like his. And he kind of is filled with nostalgia a little bit, stops him in his tracks and kind of goes over to the window and is like, wow, that looks like, that looks like my boat. I remember the good times we had with that thing. He opens the door to the store and kind of goes over to pick up the boat. It's like, man, that really looks like my boat as he's getting closer. Picks it up. That feels like my boat. Looks like my boat. He even turns it over and his initials are carved onto the bottom. In that moment, joy just overcomes him. He runs up to the cashier and he says, thank you so much, mister. You found my boat. I lost it. It's been a terrible past few days for me. Thank you so much. This is my boat. And the cashier says, I'm sorry, buddy. Uh, I can't, I can't help you. If you want the boat, you're going to have to pay for it. It doesn't matter whose initials are on it. Like, it's, it's for sale, though, if you want it. And the boy says, I don't, I don't have any money. The cashier says, sorry, buddy, I can't help you. So the little boy walks out of the store dejected but determined to get that boat back. So he goes home, and he empties out his piggy bank and looks under couch cushions in every corner of the house trying to find some spare change. Goes door to door asking his neighbors if he can do any, any jobs for them, trying to scrounge together enough money to buy this boat back. After a few days, he finally gets the money together. When he has the money, he sprints as fast as he can down to the store, and his heart's beaten out of his chest, thinking, I hope that no one bought this. I hope that when I get there, it's not gone. I hope I'm not too late. He runs, and as he gets close enough within eyeshot of the store, he sees his boat in the front corner of the window, and he rips open the door, he runs over, and he grabs his boat tight. He runs over to the cashier, slaps the money on the table, says, this is mine, I'm buying it back. And the cashier says, thanks, buddy, good doing business with you. And the little boy walks out of the store with his boat in his hand, and tears of joy fill his eyes. And he looks down at his boat, and he says, you are twice mine. I created you, you ran away from me, and now I bought you back. You are twice mine, and I am never letting you go. You are twice mine, and I'm never letting you go. Folks, God Almighty created you and created me with great specificity and intent and purpose and design and love. We are the apple of his eye, created in his image. Because of sin, as the scriptures say, that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we ran away from God. We went and did life our own way. We said no to God. That relational brokenness kept us apart from God. We had a broken relationship with God. God was determined to win us back, but it cost him something. It cost Jesus Christ his own life to buy us back. And as Jesus Christ hung on the cross 2,000 years ago, the last words, as the Gospel of John says, it is finished and in that moment, God Almighty slapped down the payment for death to win us back. Now, we are twice his. And for those of us that are in Christ, he will never let us go. I think this morning, or for folks watching online, there might be a couple different groups of people that are tuning in. You might be someone who's here or watching online that just kind of by happenstance are here and you're watching and you're still trying to figure this God stuff out. You're not really sure what you believe. I want to invite you this morning. Just like the bleeding woman, how she reached out in faith. She didn't know much. She hadn't been to church in 12 years. She wasn't allowed to go. She never went to Sunday school. She didn't know her memory verses. 
not sure if she was a good person or not, but she knew enough to reach out in faith and touch Jesus, touch just the edge of his cloak. I want to invite you guys who maybe don't have a relationship with Jesus this morning. What would it be like for you to reach out in faith? You're not going to know everything. Do you know enough of him, the one who loves you, created you, the one who you are the apple of his eye to reach out in faith to touch him? Maybe for the other folks this morning that maybe have a relationship with Jesus, maybe it's been a week, a month, a year, 10 years, 50 years, my hope and prayer is that this morning is an encouragement and a reminder that you absolutely are the apple of God's eye, that he delights in you. He can't help but take his eyes off of you. You are seen by God Almighty. You are the apple of his eye, and he is crazily in love with you. As the music team comes up and closes out our service this morning, I want to invite you just to take a moment to pause and to reflect of this invitation that Jesus gives us, this idea that God sees us. He sees our heart. He wants to listen to our stories. He sees our desire for wholeness, and he invites us to be his. So let's take a few moments of silence, and then I'll pray for us. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for loving us. I thank you that 2,000 years ago that you saw Jairus, you saw his daughter, that you saw this unnamed woman and you gave her value. You saw her not just as a nobody, but you saw her as a somebody. Pray for anyone here this morning or watching online, Lord, that might feel like a nobody, uh, might feel unseen by you. God, I thank you that you see them, Lord, would they know in the deepest part of who they are, that you see them, that you love them. I thank you that we are the apple of your eye, that you love us like crazy, and that you didn't stop until you were able to buy us back. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be twice yours. God, never let us go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.